Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, To See His Glory. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 22 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. wonder how often you've said to someone, I'll pray for you, and then you've forgotten. Or have you ever asked someone else to pray for you, and then you've wondered if they've forgotten? Well, sure, that's happened to all of us. And what's more, we're sometimes superficial in our praying. We pray, oh Lord, please bless so-and-so. And when we've said that, who knows what we meant? I'm sure we don't know, but I don't want to be too hard on you if that's your practice. I've done it too. I simply call it superficial praying. Not that it's wrong, but to pray superficially is not yet to pray with wisdom. Praying specifically, understanding the will of God, praying fervently for God's glory in the life of someone else and in their circumstances, well, that's to pray well. Have you ever been earnestly prayed for? Perhaps someone prayed that that you might be faithful or that you would be healed or that you would receive a gift from the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps it was someone's prayers that brought you to Christ. Maybe someone asked God to strengthen you in suffering, and you were shocked. You had wanted them to pray that the suffering would go away, but they felt inclined to pray in that fashion. You know, I once had a young woman ask me to pray for her. She had contracted what could have been a debilitating illness, and she asked that I pray fervently that she would glorify God in her illness and that others seeing her hope and joy would through her testimony find Christ. I was overwhelmed with that. It's a godly prayer. See, I know this. God answers prayers that are made in the center of his will and for the purpose of his glory. In so many cases and in so many ways, you know, I've been overwhelmed at what happens when God's people pray for each other and at the very center of God's will. The results are overwhelming. I mean, how clearly God intervenes, how clearly he displays his glory. Have you ever wondered what happened when Jesus prays? Remember what happened when Jesus prayed for Peter? You know, Luke 22, 31 to 32 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I find it fascinating that Jesus did not pray that Simon should not be sifted like wheat or that he shouldn't go through a trial or even that Satan shouldn't have a whack at him. But he prayed that his faith would not fail. See, I'm convinced that the difference between Judas and Peter was that prayer of Jesus. Satan sifted both of them, but the outcomes were so very different. So how about us? Does Jesus pray for us? And the answer is yes, he does. That's why we haven't fallen from the faith. See, I'm convinced that you and I would fall into one disastrous sin and outrage after another if Christ were not praying for us. And so during this series, I've made mention of Hebrews 7.25, which says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always praying for his people. I hope you find that comforting, even exciting, overwhelming. But what is he praying? See, wouldn't it be fascinating to eavesdrop and to hear Jesus praying for us? I wonder what he would say. If you think about what Jesus said to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3, you get an idea how Jesus views his churches. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus mentions the things that he commends in a local church, and from that, 
See, I have to assume that Jesus mentions to the Father those areas in your life where you've learned to be holy and blameless before him. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, he mentions the things that he has against each church. These are matters about which he demands that a local church must repent. And no doubt Jesus is interceding for you when and where you're sinning, and he's asking the Father to send the Spirit to bring grief into your heart. And then Revelation 2 to 3, Jesus promises each church a reward if they remain faithful to the end. No doubt Jesus is praying for us that that we would be motivated by the promises he has made to us and that we would never take our eyes off of the prize or the joy that is set before us. See, I have to imagine that Jesus is praying that way for all of us. He prays to strengthen that which is positive. He prays that we would repent of things like our complacency, the habitual sins of the flesh, or our fears and unbelief. And he prays that we would never forget the hope that is set before us. Can you imagine his earnest prayers for you? It would be great to eavesdrop on that. But in one case, we can. You know, in John 17, verses 20 to 26, that's the part of the high priestly prayer in which Jesus prays specifically for all those who will believe in him through the word of the apostles. That's every single believer in Jesus in all of history. Listen up, believers, and hear what your Savior has prayed for you. I began to speak about this yesterday when we read verses 20 to 21. And let me, for remembrance sake, read it again. Remember, he's just been praying for the apostles, and then he moves on from there. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And interestingly enough, the very first thing Jesus prays for is that we would love one another. But I pointed out yesterday, Jesus was not praying for a unity in organizational structure. He's not praying for a unity under the leadership of a global headquarters somewhere, maybe in Rome. Rather, he's praying for an internal unity, a unity of heart, a unity in our love for each other, a unity in the truth that he taught us. You know, D.A. Carson put it this way, the unity for which Christ prays is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged. See, in other words, this prayer was not fulfilled as we had ecumenical gatherings in which we decided to ignore certain doctrinal truths. Rather, it's a unity in the truth that the apostles would leave for us that is in the scriptures. But you might say, what about those times when Christians have been at war with each other? What about church fights and bitterness that sometimes exist between believers? You know, all of us know that these things are sadly true. But let me suggest several things. First, please notice that the unity Jesus spoke of is a certain kind of unity. Jesus didn't promise that we would always get along. It is sad when we don't. It is often a reflection of our own sin. But we must not confuse what Jesus prayed for here and Secondly, please also notice that Jesus more than once warned against false brothers. You know, if there are those who believe and teach heresy, we're not to seek such unity. 
We should remember that all over the world, it is false Christians that have persecuted true Christians. See, there is no unity that Jesus wanted between false and true believers. But among all who truly confess Christ as Savior and Lord, the impulse of every true child of God is fellowship and loving unity with other believers. This was the matter Jesus fervently prayed for, and I have to believe that it is still foremost in his mind as he prays for us today. But let's move forward to verse 23, second thing Jesus prayed for. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, clearly, the theme is still unity, but now Jesus prays for our unity that it would flow outward into the world. And we live in a hopelessly divided world. See, our culture is desperately divided. Many of the architects of our culture, the finest elite minds who think about these things, hope that we might merely tolerate each other. And in their thinking, we must then affirm any differences among us, and they're simply a matter of style. I mean, kind of like I say tomato and you say tomato, you say gay and I say straight, and you say religious and I say irreligious, you say faithful and I say unfaithful, that, that kind of unity. Now, in secular cultures like ours, that's important. Unity has to be maintained through tolerance of deeply contradictory values. I know there are those who in the present milieu want to cancel out someone else's right to exist and to speak and to meet, but that's contrary to the thought of liberal democracy. See, a liberal democracy of deeply divisive people can only function without persecution if all sides learn to tolerate each other. So make no mistake about it, tolerance is not unity, it's not love. Notice how different is the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ. Our unity consists in a unity in the truth of Jesus. We lay down our own rights. We deny that each of us is Lord of our own ideas and desires. And instead, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord of all. That's a unity in submission. That's a very different kind of unity than that which the world has seen. That's because this kind of unity makes room for genuine love. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. While buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly, it's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year end strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work. Please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Well, the unity Jesus has in mind will bring about two effects, and you want to notice them in verse 23. And the first effect is that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. And what we might wonder, how is the unity of believers assigned to unbelievers that the Father loved the world so much that he gave his only Son? 
Well, the answer has to be that the unity between believers makes evangelism effective. Well, you might want to consider the opposite. What would occur if true believers in Jesus were deeply divided and made no effort to love each other? Well, the answer is we would not call out preachers or evangelists or missionaries. We would not sacrificially support them. And furthermore, we would not combine our resources to maximize the impact of the gospel. And furthermore, in any place in this world where the gospel is preached, where there is a vibrant church that experiences love and unity, men and women are drawn and Christ is made known. Well, the second effect is not only that the world knows the identity of Jesus, but that the love among believers also speaks of the kind of love that the Father and Son enjoy with each other. Indeed, any love believers experience is merely an outflow of that divine love. But there's another item here we must not miss. Love among believers was never intended as only a celebration of joy amongst ourselves. It's a celebration that Christ is being proclaimed. The concern of the love between believers is not just that we, you know, form a holy huddle, but that the love of God is ever expanding, ever inviting, ever fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, that tells us something about Christ's concern. He doesn't pray for just one thing at the exclusion of others. He doesn't just pray for unity or a passion for the truth, or a desire to reach the lost. No, he prays for all three, that they will always be coexisting. I've often been fascinated by the words Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, words that are recorded in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. See, I find those words so fascinating because at the close of the first century, that was when Revelation was written, Jerusalem had been destroyed and Ephesus had become the global center of the Christian church. But there was a problem in Ephesus. You know, earlier when Paul was making his last trip to Jerusalem, he met with the Ephesian elders and he warned them that after he departed, savage wolves would arise from their own numbers, that is, among the elders. They would savage the church in that city with false teaching. And then when we come to the book of 1 Timothy, very close to the time of Paul's own death, Paul then writes to Timothy, who was at that time in Ephesus. Paul says, I went to northern Greece, but I commissioned you to go to Ephesus so that you would command certain men who were no doubt the elders that Paul had spoken of earlier, that they no longer teach false doctrines. In other words, Timothy, you clean that mess up. And Timothy must have. We know that because when we get to Revelation 2, Jesus tells the Ephesian church that they have done well, that they have not tolerated wicked people but they had taken on those who claimed to be apostles but were not, and they had publicly found them to be false. But then when all seemed well, Jesus said, but I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. See, Bible teachers aren't always sure what kind of love Jesus had in mind. I mean, was it love for God? Well, was it love for one another? Was it love for the lost? But that's the point. It's always all three. We must never cling to unity at the cost of doctrinal purity. We must never cling to doctrinal purity at the cost of evangelism. And in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays that the church would continue to hold all three at the same time. You know, and many churches are, and that's the point. That's the answer to Christ's prayer. So so we ask, what does Jesus pray for his people? Well, we see him praying that we might be one. And he's also praying that the outflow of our unity will result in evangelism. Now, here's the third request. It's a request that we, his people, might persevere. Verse 24, 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, could you stop here for just a moment and hear our words that are overwhelmingly passionate. Father, I desire, he prays. You know, the word gives us a sense of deep longing. You know, one word study says, you know, it is my pleasure or it is my delight. I desire with deliberation and with determination. Well, the word can be simply translated as I will. I have a resolute will that I will not allow to be thwarted. So what's the desire? That all those, he says, whom you, Father, have given me, well, who are those? Well, they are those who have faith in Christ. I desire that they may be where I am. See, I will not be satisfied until I have brought them home in glory where I am. Let's stop for a moment and just take in the beauty of what Jesus has been praying for us. Jesus wills that you be finally and eternally brought to him. You're wanted in his presence. Now, when I think about that, I make that very personal. I imagine my first day in heaven when that wondrous moment comes, when I'm allowed to be presented before Jesus. I long to fall at his feet and worship. You know, in my mind, that would be more than enough. I mean, that thought simply satisfies my heart. And then comes something I would not have dared to hope for if I had not heard Jesus pray to the Father for me in this regard. See, when I get to heaven, he will tell me how he has longed for me. His loving heart has been patiently waiting, much like two lovers who have been separated for years. Even so, his heart has longed for me, and I imagine to my utter shock that he will tell me so. And then Jesus asks for more. He wants all of us to see his glory. Now, when I think about that, I can't help but reflect on Peter's words. 1 Peter 1 verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Indeed, that's all of our testimony on this side of heaven. We haven't seen him, but the Holy Spirit has caused us to love him. And that's the mystery and it's the wonder. But Jesus is not content with that. He tells the Father so. It is his desire that we who love him and who worship him might have the joy of seeing him exalted in his glory. Now, when this prayer began back in verse 5, and Jesus had prayed that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. And we know that for the Father and the Son, the joy that they found in each other, the glory they shared, left nothing to be desired. Nothing was lacking. No joy was not known to the other. It was not necessary that one thing be added to that perfect glory. But now Jesus prays that we as people might be included in that perfect glory. I have a memory of visiting a dear old saint in the hospital. She was a woman noted for her godliness and holiness. And I had received a call and I was told that I should hurry. She wouldn't last long. I arrived as quickly as I could and I sat down beside that frail body, this wonderful woman. I took her hand and she spoke so weakly, but I heard her so very clearly. She said, I'm so happy. I'm almost home. Those were her first words to me. Well, she died shortly after that, and I was astonished at the joy I felt for her. For years, Jesus had been praying for her, and I imagined her joy that she beheld the glorified Jesus, the words of her Savior saying, my child, I was praying for you for many years, and oh, how I have longed for you to be here. So what does Jesus pray for? Well, our unity, our effective evangelism, our perseverance all the way to the end, and then one more thing. 
In the meantime, while we're still here on this earth, he prays for our ever-increasing awareness of him. He's praying for our progress in the faith. John 17, 25 to 26, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, we began this series with a question. How in a world in which the the love of many has grown cold, how can we be assured that we will not fall away? And I might have answered that Jesus has provided so many means which are intended to keep us in his love. But now I add, listen, your Savior is earnestly praying for you. And in his prayer, right there at the end, he makes a commitment to his Father. See, he tells his Father that he will continue to make the name of God known to us. Well, how about you? Are you sensing the love that the Father and the Son have for you? Is the name of the Father becoming a greater and greater aspect of your life? Might I ask you to reflect on all that the Son has promised the Father when it comes to you? That is, if you are truly in Christ. And if not, might I ask you to join me in praying this prayer? Heavenly Father, I will to surrender to Jesus Christ as my Savior. I repent of my sins and give myself to Christ. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a wonderful series. Let me ask you this final question. Talk to us about the significance of prayer, particularly our prayer for others. Why is it so important that we practice intercessory prayer? I think one of the things that intercessory prayer does for all of us, it binds us together. Uh, Suddenly we become concerned not just for our own personal needs, but we become deeply concerned for the welfare, the well-being of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, of course, God doesn't need our prayers, but he has many times decided that he would act in accordance to our prayers. And so if this is true, then God demands that we become deeply involved with each other. So it builds unity, it builds love, uh, it, um, it, it makes us also one in spirit with each other. So suddenly our prayers mingle with the prayers of others and we begin to sense more deeply that we are a family of God who approaches the throne together. So I think these are some of the reasons why the Lord has demanded that we do be in constant prayer, not just for ourselves, but for others. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada, wishing you all the joy, hope, and wonder of the season. While the trees go up, lights are hung, and the house smells of delicious baked goods, many of us find ourselves celebrating apart from our families this year. This Christmas season may look and even feel different, but nothing can diminish the message of hope that Christ brings. The coming of Jesus was and is the arrival of ultimate hope in a world that has lost its hope. It's why we can genuinely say Merry Christmas. We're so thankful for our Back to the Bible Canada family. Your partnership makes this ministry possible. 
To support these Bible teaching efforts this month, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.